out of about seven. Okay, so if you want to just, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Tibor, but just yeah. click on your screen to say got it, and then you'll, that'll go away. Go ahead, Tibor. Uh, and which means that I don't even belong here because I'm a first generation, not second. No, no you're, you belong. You belong to us. Don't worry. Uh, we'll make you included. And my problem is that instead of being upset and uh, pissed off and, and having a trauma, I celebrated life ever since. But I spent 20 years in a communist country, became an engineer, PhD in chemistry, inventor and working glass industry. And then I became an artist, which means that I transferred my problems into art and healed myself. And I'm giving a lot of lectures on healing art as well as, uh, you know, like talking about uh, problems of a uh, living person, a, a Jew in the world. Uh, I was uh, 38 when I got married, and uh, we uh, a year later they sent me to Cuba to fix glass factories, glass industry in Cuba. Nine months later, we ran away to Canada and then to drifted nine years later to America, to the United States. And we live in Kingston, New York. Uh, and this is basically my very brief biography. Okay, I'm, uh, for 25 yeah. years, I've been an artist. Uh, close by is Woodstock, New York, which was uh, very famous since 1969. And uh, so far, so good. Or I say, so far, so good. <laughs> very good. And so I want to let everyone know to save the date in your calendars on April 23rd, Tibor and Naomi are presenting um, their program to our group on the live event. And I knew when I saw Tibor's face on the tile that somehow I knew him and I couldn't determine where from. And all of a sudden, so, you know, so some of you who know me very well know, me, know that I'm a fanatical uh, fan of film. And since I've been tracing my parents' parents' roots, I have um, watched over 500 Holocaust films, and even more today. That was probably the number in 221. And so I went back doing some research on a film that would help my research about my parents, and I found this film called Songs of Survivors. And I just happened to say, what is this again? And lo and behold, at the very end of the film, Tibor is on the film. And that's how I learned and knew that I knew Tibor. And uh, I am combining Tibor's presentation with this lovely PBS program called Songs of Survivors. Um, and so, you know, that's what we're gonna do on the 23rd. Uh, hello, Devora. nice to see you. Hello, Ruth, nice to see you. Michael, since you have to depart us early, I wanna give you a chance to chime in now and tell us about yourself um, so everyone can inter be introduced to you. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> My name is Michael Polgar. I'm a son of and grandson of survivors from Budapest, Hungary. Um, I am working as a professor in um, Pennsylvania State University. Um, 
but in the northeast quadrant of Pennsylvania, northeast PA, not far from Tibor. I'm I'm uh, I'm in the Wilkesbury, Scranton, Hazelton metropolitan district, which is about an hour and a half uh, west of Kingston, go, New York. Go Lions! Uh, go Lions! It's called yeah. Nittany Nittany Lions. Nittany Lions. Nittany Lions. All right. Yeah, the cheer we we do is. I say we are, and then everybody else says Penn State, and so it's a, <laughs> it's, a it's a call and response for a, a thousand or hundred thousand people in a football stadium. But it's also <clears throat> Penn State's been very good about supporting my work. Um, I've developed a course in Holocaust studies. Um, it's a combined history and sociology course because I'm a sociologist. And I've also recently uh, published a um, open educational resource, which is a um, new name for a textbook that's free and online. So um, with my cousin, who's a performing arts professor in Texas at Texas Christian, we have uh, curated or edited about 27 chapters and growing uh, about the Holocaust and genocide. Um, and it's it's free for any teachers, any students, any educators of any kind who want to use it. Um, I can put the link in the chat. Um, but my you know my work is both in teaching and in and developing this this resource. Um, and where, um, were your, where were your parents and grandparents from? Uh, they were from Budapest, Hungary, and uh, my or my father was. My mother was. A, American born, although her, uh, I think her grandparents were Hungarian, just not survivor generation. Um, and my father was uh, with his sister and their parents. They all four survived. Uh, they were, I learned from Irene Butter, they're called exchange Jews, which means they were in a camp in, in Bergen-Belsen in particular, and they were released before the end of the war in the fall of 1944 in two different uh, transports. Uh, so they made it out to Geneva, and in 1948, they were they were fortunate to, to be allowed to come to the US. Um, my father passed in the 70s, my grandmother in the 80s, and my aunt uh, fairly recently. Uh, so I, I don't have as much uh, direct oral history as I would like, but I'm learning, and I, and I am real interested in uh, talking with people about all the issues related to the Holocaust and genocide. Okay, and I'm going to go up to you, Ava, and then I'm going to ask you, will it be okay to tell us a little bit of our mutual history and how we learned about each other after you speak? Yes, please. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Um, my name is Ava Zaid Sarkissian, and uh, both of my parents are survivors, were survivors. Um, my Mom was from Czechoslovakia and my dad from Poland. Um, my dad was in labor camps for five years. He was in the groups of boys that they took from Poland early uh, in the war, I guess at sometime in 1939. And um, my mom went to Auschwitz with her father and probably four, five, four siblings, uh, none of the siblings survived that went to Auschwitz or her father. But she did have one sister that had been hiding in the forest with her husband because she was a little bit older and had already been married. So she survived and ended up in Russia and then later 
went to Israel. So she got to see, they got to see each other after 35 years. And, um, and I, so I also got to know her and my cousins. So that was really special. My dad ended up having uh, three siblings survive out of a family of six or seven children. And uh, none of the, none of the other, um, well, I should say three out of all of those family members survived. And they all ended up, three ended up in Sweden, one ended up in Argentina. And the one in Argentina came to San Diego via my parents bringing them through, you know, the immigration process. And uh, my uncle and aunt that were in Sweden stayed in Sweden and lived there. Uh, my parents were there, came to the United States, to San Diego. And that's how I was born in San Diego. And um, they, both my parents um, have been gone for, I think, 11 or 12 years now. They died four months apart. And um, that's it. And then Jeffrey and I have a special story that he's going to tell you. And so this is part of the reason why I wanted to do the Havara, so we have time to talk about family and connections. Yeah. I, I never really wanted anything to do about the Holocaust. In fact, I ran away from the Holocaust for my whole life, and I've suffered trauma, inherited trauma that I didn't know I even had since I was in the fifth grade. And so when we moved in 2019 from Minneapolis to San Diego, uh, my wife, Myra, we've been married over 36 years, and knew each other for four years before that, um, was, has been an active leader in the Jewish community and has been leader, taken leadership positions in many institutions in her career. She was anxious to get back into the Jewish community in San Diego. And so we went to a, um, I'm going to tell the long version of the story, Ava. So if okay. you don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> at least, at least let's people know. So we went to a uh, Shabbat uh uh, function at the JCC here in, Cal in La Jolla, California. And uh, we met a woman who was sitting, uh, knitting, and she wanted to come early. We got there early. And my uh, wife, Meyer, can talk to a flagpole. So she started talking to uh, Freddie. Freddie started talking to Myra. And before, the, before you know it, Freddie said, is one or both of you as second gen? And Myra pointed to me and I looked at Myra with dagger eyes and I said, don't you <laughs> dare start to get me involved in a, in a, in a second generation group. So because I, you know, I, I had not, nothing to do with it. So she happened to say that the next that that particular Sunday was a special meeting, a social meeting for the group. It was called In Mama's Kitchen. And it was designed to be able to bring one of your one of your mother's um, dishes to the group. And I went reluctantly, um, Myra dragging me by my nose to go. And <laughs> first person Freddie introduced me to was Ava. And Ava and I started chatting. And I said to Ava, what's your mother's, where's your mother from? And she said, Koshitse, Czechoslovakia. I said, I said, looked at Myra and I said, Koshitse, Czechoslovakia. My mom is from Koshitse, Czechoslovakia. And then I said to Ava, I said, what was your mother's last name, maiden name? And she said, Friedman. I looked at Myra and I said, you're not going to believe this. My mother's maiden name was Friedman. Ava calls over to her older sister, Ida, who was there as well. And she says, Ida, what was mom's, what, 
what, what was mom's maiden name? She said, it was Freeman. You know that, Ava. And so, and then Ava asks, well, um, uh, what was the next question she asked? Uh, so she said, well, the long story is. You gave Ava, you gave them the punchline before. <laughs> I know. I'm, I, I can't tell Anyways, we found, we decided that day that we are related. Yes, we, we didn't need Ancestry or 23andMe. We immediately put a stamp of Ancestry. And now, yep. you know, without, other than my sister here in the United States, I have no family. But now with the Ava, <laughs> Ida, and Henry in San Diego, I have yep. grown my family at 3X. So I am so excited to, and every, and, and Ava's a big proponent of uh, Holocaust education. She is, we also share uh, a membership in the second generation show a group here in San Diego and uh, with 120 other people. So it's been a really interesting, and, and that meeting was really the cause. In, 2000, yeah. in 2008, my sister got my parents to write a life document about their survivor status. And I never could open that document for the reasons that I mentioned early on. I came home and couldn't sleep because I got so uh, excited about this whole thing that was happening, meeting 120, meaning 50 people who were second gen, some parents talked, mine never talked about the Holocaust. Some people talked about the Holocaust, some parents did, some didn't. That that evening at three o'clock in the morning, I opened that those documents for the very first time. And I read my parents' documents. And would you believe it, in my mother's document, she omitted any discussion from 1942 to 1945. So I don't, my father gave a full accounting of what happened to him, but my mother refused to speak and she refused to speak in that document. So that's a little bit about, a little more background about myself. So I'm going to switch over to Zola. So Zola, um, any stories you want to tell us, go ahead, tell us a little bit about your background. And she's she's so kind to always come from Cape Town, South Africa. And nice. Zola is doing our next program in March on the 19th. It's a special program as well. So hello, everybody, familiar faces and new ones. Um, both my parents were from Vilna in then Poland, and um, they were in the Vilna ghetto. And my mother was a Yiddish singer, and she became known as the Wunderkind of the Vilna ghetto because she was always in the leading role and singing the songs. Her brother Leib Rosenthal was a very famous poet and satirical writer. He also wrote for Yiddish puppet theater before the ghetto. And he wrote a lot of songs and he was one of the most prolific writers with three or four others who wrote the musical reviews in the ghetto. So music really kept them alive and saved them and so many others post-war. And after the war, um, after the liberation, which this year, is the 80th anniversary of the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto. And my uncle Leib, unfortunately, was sent off to a camp in Estonia and he was killed in Camp Kluger. And he even continued to write songs in the concentration camp as well. Um, after the war, my mother wrote down all his songs and some of the others that she remembered from the Vilna ghetto in a little book that we as children only discovered after she died, because my mother also did not talk about her experiences. But my father did. And 
he was a journalist, so he kept lots of documents and he wrote articles in the newspaper and he spoke for six hours to in the Spielberg Foundation testimony. And after the war, when they met, they my mother continued to perform across Europe in with Yiddish theater in the displaced persons camp. And it was Molly Pickon who discovered her and helped to get her out of Poland after the war and made their way to France. And then she was invited to South Africa to perform in Yiddish theater. And so that's how they got to South Africa. That's the summary. I have an old, had an older sister, eight years older. It was just the two of us. And she was really the torchbearer of the history, the family history. So she wrote and she wrote a book and she wrote a musical about their lives. And she would teach Holocaust programming and travel the world. And she actually went to Vilna in 2003 and performed on the same stage. She did her show in Yiddish on the same stage in the Vilna Geta Theater that my mother had performed all those years before. And I was not interested in the whole Holocaust story like Jeffrey, like many others, because she was doing it. We had it, you know, the Holocaust was the fourth member of our family, but it was for me more personal. I was nurturing and caring the parents for the parents, as opposed to my sister who was teaching the world about the Holocaust. She died in 2009 and my mom also passed away at age 54. So it's only in the last 10 years, really, that I have taken on more of now I sing in Yiddish and share their stories and share their songs and delve more into second generation stuff. So I knew you're going to be on here. So would I embarrass you if I played something? And maybe you can um, help me by <laughs> sure. introducing Hiratsitsu. Okay, so as I said, only in the last few years did I start to get more involved in Holocaust education. And I was asked to sing, find some music and sing at the Yom HaShoah commemoration in 2019 with the school children from the Jewish Day School. And instead of going to find some music to sing, I decided it was time to write something. So I wrote my first English and Yiddish song as a tribute to my parents, to my uncle, and to all survivors, to all our families lost, and as a promise to future generations to basically say, listen, we will remember you. Hold on a second, guys. And, and is this the one you're playing? Then I'm honored to say that this is recorded by someone I didn't even know who heard it and wanted to teach it to the LA Jewish community children. Rabbi Michelle Green. I 
Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Sorry, hold on a second. Thank you. So thank you, Zola, for the, all these. Well, every time I hear that, I shed a tear. So it's it's a beautiful, beautiful situation. Thank so, you. Um, I want to turn over to Mark. And Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and tell us a little bit about the books that you're writing. You always give me a tough act to follow. <laughs> Zola, I have tears in my eyes. I literally do. That was just absolutely amazing. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Newhouse, and I had the privilege of speaking to this group a number of months ago. Uh, I share Jeffrey's story and Zola's story that my parents really did not talk very much at all about the Holocaust, just enough to give me terrible nightmares. And recently, I found a poem that I'd written when I was about, I guess, maybe 14 years old. And I think maybe you'll understand why, as a young boy, I did not really question my parents very much and how I guess like Jeffrey, my interest in my background really began as an accident. This is called, When Do the Train Dreams Stop? And when most boys think of trains, they are so excited. They want to play with the trains. This is a slightly different point of view. When do the train dreams stop? Always bringing a new crop. Crowded in the cattle cars, branded with yellow stars. Standing room only, trains never end. Family scattered, no word of friends. Mothers, sons, fathers, and daughters riding blind through the slaughter. There is no one coming back from the other end of the railroad track. When do the train dreams stop? When millions of stars from heaven drop. I hear the endless clickety-clack as the hellbound trains each night empty roar back. When you have nightmares like that, we lost your mic. We lost your mic. Somehow we lost your audio. Did you hit? Um, yeah, you're unmuted. You're on mute, Mark. So let's unmute yourself. There were, you, you. were you able to hear the poem? Yes. When you have nightmares like that, you don't ask questions. And my parents, my parents had me two years and one day after mom was freed from Auschwitz. We came to the United States about six months later. They had spent most of their lives in Ludge, called pronounced Budge, Poland. I knew almost nothing about Vudge, as I've said before. I thought it was Anatevka in Fiddler on the Roof. Even And the only thing I really knew was that my parents had been in the Holocaust and they had lost their parents and my mother had lost a number of her siblings. I didn't even know their names. After my mother passed away, she gave me a, she had given me a book and I found it when I was about to put it in a thrift store pile. And it was the Chronicle of the Ghetto. And I sat down with that book for three days, astonished at what I learned. I had never even heard of 
the leader of the ghetto, a man by the name of Chaim Ramkowski. And as I've said in my talks, I was so moved by what I was learning about my past, because most of my early life was a mystery to me, that I had to learn more. And so I started doing research. And finally, I said, you know, I feel guilty because my children won't know anything about this unless I do something about it. So I began to write. And in 30 days, I wrote about 700 pages on my computer. It was really as if the spirits of my dead relatives were writing the book through me. And I was still not convinced to share it with anybody except my family. But then I gave it to other people to read. And they said, Mark, you have to publish this. And after I entered it into contest, it won several very important awards, including an international competition. And I'm proud to say that my books, The Devil's Bookkeepers, have just hit 500 reviews on Amazon. That doesn't count reviews from other places. But more important than the numbers are the kinds of reviews. And Zola, when I saw those children singing, I thought of one very special review. And that was someone wrote that after I read your book, I could hear the heavenly chorus thousands and thousands of children singing. So those kinds of reviews touch my heart. And I will now tell you that we are now working on a, a television limited series based on the books. And it's a long shot, but you know what? It's something I have to try. And I'm just very, very grateful for all I'm learning from this group. And Jeffrey, I love you very much for inviting me to the group and to share my story. The only thing I can tell you is that I have learned so much from everybody here. And the hardest part for me is not sitting here and crying when I hear something like what I just heard with those wonderful children singing, because they're keeping the memory alive. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Right. And, you, and you know, Mark, you never blow your own horn. So. For everyone on the video and who's going to be hearing this, Mark was the educator of the year in New York State. Uh, he's been a longtime teacher, and uh, it comes his passion for education comes through every time I have any connection to uh, Mark. So thanks for being here, Ruth. Um, you're going to be introducing yourself to me. I don't uh, really recall. Uh, you attending anything in the past or you, so I want to say hello and thank you for coming and maybe you can tell us a little bit about you your parents where you're located and any any thoughts that you want to add yes thank you very much Jeffrey and I'm also getting over my tears <laughs> um, so I live in San Francisco um, sorry I know it's okay. You can take some. It's a very, it's a highly emotional topic. Thank you, Zola. Um, I've come to this quite late um, because I spent a career working with UNICEF and WHO, the World Health Organization, around the world, and that was such a demanding job that I would never. I missed the whole two G thing, and now I'm much older, and it's kidding me. So I have a. Maybe you could call it a lighter past and related to the Holocaust, but it doesn't feel like for our family. I live in San Francisco. I We grew up in Geneva, Switzerland. Our father was a Holocaust survivor. The family was from the Rhineland in Germany. 
Um, they, of course, had to leave. Um, my grandmother and her family were on the St. Louis. My great-grandmother died in Auschwitz. Um, I discovered on Yad Vashem's website, and I have been trying, I think I'm the family memory keeper. Um, I have written an article that was published about our grandfather who was a winemaker and what it was like to be a wine, Jewish winemaker in Germany during the Nazi years. I'm now, I've written a book, but I haven't, I see this a lot of authors here and my duly impressed with Mr. Newhouse and what all of you are doing. So I am looking at the food, the way that our culinary heritage, how did food help keep our family together and specifically a cheesecake that our grandmother, great grandmother, the one who died in Auschwitz made and how we're still making it a hundred years later and how is that experience yeah. of being around the table something that restored our family and kept us going. So I am just belatedly again um, welcoming, I've never had the chance to, to be in contact with people who've had this experience and for whatever reason, I'm the chosen one in my self-chosen one to be a memory keeper. So that's why I'm here. I, I also can't stay maybe till the end. I don't know how long it is, but I'm grateful to you, Jeffrey, for initiating this. And I, I don't, if there's anybody in the San Francisco area who's doing what you're doing, I'd love to learn it. And my, my thanks to everybody for what you are doing and sharing in the memory keeping department. Oh, wow. I am interested maybe to just add one point. I, there sort of feels like there may be a hierarchy of suffering in the Holocaust, you know, like people who just have the most dreadful stories and is ours not so bad because we only had a couple of relatives die in the Holocaust? Because I know neither my father nor my aunt could ever forgive. And it's they, they, that, that it's, I've, so that issue of the degree to which your family is affected and how you're viewed in the Holocaust community as a result is of interest to me because I struggle with that. Well, Ruth, I just sent you a text to everyone. So, since you're interested in food, there's two books that I recommend. Both of them have done programs with me, Cara De Silva called Hidden Recipes, Hidden Memories. Um, uh, and it's about how survivors in Terezin shared recipes. Yes, if I can just say I've met Cara, she passed yeah. away. Actually. Yes, she just recently passed away, yes. Yeah. And then also Eva Maremi, who's from Minneapolis, wrote a beautiful book called Hidden Recipes a memoir. Mm -hmm. So I, I easily can introduce you to her. And yes, in the Bay Area is a gentleman who just recently published his book called Peter Kupfer. And he did yes, Classmaker's class Son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank Very you. good. All right. The next up is my friend, uh, survivor, uh, Jackie. Jackie Gamash, you're up next. Come on. Thank you for the gamash. <laughs> okay, hi all of you. I have met some of you and I am totally in, I don't know how to introduce myself. Uh, usually I say, go Google. Uh, I'm developing a program. We are the tree of life. I have been in educators in many fields for 63 years in many countries. But let's, if you don't mind, Jeffrey, let's not take it a, a about me, but uh, Zola and Mark and all of you, I, I would like to say it's so touching 
to hear your story. And I have said that that many of our my introductions, how can we work together? How can we get involved? And uh, if I address you, uh, Zola, if I may call you Zola, uh, uh, is we are the tree of life is englobes what you are doing and how you can complement my efforts by contacting me and working with my team and us working with your team. Mark, it's the same thing. You are an educator for so many years. You know about education. You are pro producing a book, uh, which already I'm sure is going to be essential. That means my motivation today, my motivations, I don't know if you can say that in English <laughs> today, or my motivation has two aspects. One, it's the partnership to get as much as we can together. We all know about the, the tree of life and I'm calling it, we are the tree of life. That means in a sense, I see each individual or each organization as part of a leaf of the tree or as part of a branch of the tree. And I am pushing that because with determination because what happened today is terrible. What happened today is awful. It's like we individuals, we have learned nothing. We, we have those genocide, we have those horrors. And at the same time, we have this word of resilience, this word of courage, and this word of hope and love. That means I am taking a direction that I want to only one uh, you to share with you because it's not easy, but from the story of the Holocaust and the horror of the Holocaust, I am getting very slowly to the world of Ukraine. No politics. I'm not interested in politics. I don't know about politics, but I think about all those people who are suffering. And for example, one event that we are the Tree of Life is planning today, which is going to be live, it's to be at our Balboa Park, where we have an open theater with 3,500 seats. And I am trying to have the Jewish community at large supporting the House of Ukraine, who is going to have this concert on the 24th of February, and hoping that you, you were talking about music. Can with music give them some peace, give them some less trauma? Or, I, I don't know. The other thing that I want to, to mention is uh, I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychologist. I'm just an educator. 63 years, many, many fields, as I said. And uh, I think... We, we have to take those disciplines that we have today and bring some peace. And one of them, I'm developing a program that we call uh, from post-traumatic disorder to post-traumatic growth with USC. And uh, we it's going to be live and, uh, and I don't know anything about trauma or yes, I do know about trauma because I have lived my little trauma. That means, please, as you thank you to Jeffrey for organizing those Havera 
and Haverot with the intent of working together and improving each of us what we are trying to achieve. And you're up next, Devora, and Devora is also a survivor. And she's recently kind of uh, leaned forward and told her story. So uh, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Thank you for calling me a survivor. I do not call that of myself. <clears throat> I call myself a keeper of the flame. Um, my grandparents, Fritz and Ida, were murdered in Treblinka. Um, my parents uh, got out of Czechoslovakia after Kristallnacht, but before um, the Nazis took over Czechoslovakia because my dad was born in Reichenberg, the Sudetenland. So he somehow um, became a German citizen and somehow was able to cut, to use that three month period between October 39 and January of, October 38th, January, they, they left in January of 39 for America. And somehow my dad was able to get uh, permission to come to America. The rest of the family did not. They lived in liberal Czechoslovakia. They didn't believe what was happening. Anyway, I was born in 1942 in Northampton, Massachusetts two weeks after my grandparents were murdered in Treblinka. My mother found out when I was three. She got a telegram in 1945 from the one surviving cousin um, telling her what happened to everybody and that she was she herself was the only survivor. And she had survived by somehow escaping from a train that was on its way to Auschwitz the Russians had bombed the tracks and she and three other um, prisoners had somehow gotten behind, she said, gotten under the train. That sounds, I, I anyway, she escaped and uh, she was then the, mess, the messenger for the family and she was also the, my parent, my mother kept in touch and I forced my mother in 1990 when my mother was already 78 years old to take me to Prague to visit Goethe. My mother kept saying she didn't want to go back to see stones. You know, the family wasn't there. And I would say, but Goethe, and she would not want to do it. But she gave me five days in Prague, and we get to the Prague Jewish Cemetery, where we know that her great, her grandfather, my great grandfather, is buried. His name is Emanuel Schlosser. Um, we get to the to the gravestone, and to her surprise and my amazement, it doesn't only say Emanuel Schlosser, but engraved on his stone. Next to his parents in community are the names of the 14 members 
the direct members of my mother's family who perished in the Holocaust. She does not know who engraved those names, but it made a big impression on her. It was somehow healing. It was somehow, now she knew why I forced her to come. And there was a bench next to this gravestone where I am imagining my children, my grandchildren, who knows if they were ever gonna to get to Czechoslovakia or the cemetery, but in my mind. So the, the, the great, great grandparents, then the grandparent, great. Anyways, that we're connecting the generations. And I, I spoke about seeing that, <clears throat> that image, that gravestone with those names. I spoke about that in a uh, Jewish storytelling group organized by Jennifer Ruddick Sunikoff uh, for Teach the Shoah. And um, I sent Jeffrey the link. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a 10 minute um, description of that moment of, of sort of connecting the broken part, the, the, the Czech part, and the future part. So that's one thing. The other thing in connection to listening to Zola, you were, you stirred in me a tremendous emotion and I'm very grateful. It made me think about um, a time when, so I lived in Israel for 16 years, part of my healing journey to connect myself to the broken part of myself was to move to Kibbutz Gesher in Israel, where I lived for 16 years. And so my husband is a singer and he was drafted into the Israeli army and he was serving in Lebanon. But he had also been asked to sing at the Holocaust um, memorial ceremony at Kibbutz Lachemegetot, which is the kibbutz, the museum for ghetto fighters uh, that's located not that far from our kibbutz. But he was now in Lebanon. And he got permission from the army to come and sing. But somehow the permission and the transport didn't quite work together. So he now had permission, but he was way, I don't know, he was half an hour into Lebanon. And he felt this need to go sing this Yiddish song. Um, so he hitchhiked. He, he was an Israeli soldier in Lebanon with this Uzi over his shoulder and he's hitchhiking in Lebanon for the purpose of getting to sing at Kibbutz Lachemegot for Yom HaShoah. I've actually asked him to sing me that song and he sort of doesn't remember it, but I hope he does remember it and does perform it because it was so meaningful to him at the time. I'm afraid I missed that. I usually go to the memorial, but because yeah, <laughs> of this story, he was going straight from Lebanon to that um, memorial. Anyway, thank you, Zola, for uh, reminding me of that amazing and, memory. And Deborah, I'm always looking for guest artists 
for the program. So if you can convince your husband to to remember how to sing it, I want you to bring I want you to bring him to as a guest and perform it on our group. You have a you have a date. You just have to execute. All right. So next up is Sammy. Sammy's a survivor. He's in New York, uh, outside of New Brooklyn, I think, or somewhere in New York. And I love the I love the red Rutgers shirt. That's a North Jersey. I'm used. To, I'm from Allentown, Pennsylvania, originally. So that Rutgers is a is close okay. by. Uh, we competed at Temple University against Rutgers in the football. So uh, welcome, Sammy, and tell us a little about yourself. Let's need to keep it a little short, but go ahead. Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Hi, Jeff. <clears throat> I love your program. <clears throat> just like uh, most of you, but uh, just like uh, Mark, <clears throat> uh, I do not know anyone from my family. The only thing that I knew that's from my father's side, from uh, 42 people, only two survived. Uh, I, uh, just like Mark, uh, I did not uh, ask questions. Uh, obviously, until the Eichmann trial, Holocaust survivors did not talk publicly, definitely not to the children. They wanted the children to have a normal childhood. And my life changed in 2003 when I was at the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, it closed its door to the general public for two days. And it opened it up only to the Holocaust survivors, their children, and their liberators. There were over 8,000 people. And at the table where I was sitting, I met a man born in the same city, been in the same camp, the same years, 41, 44. He was deported when he was eight months old. I was deported when I was here and a half. By the way, we were deported by the Romanians, not by the Germans. Uh, like uh, all of you, uh, we all went through ups and downs, but there was one thing that I never had in my life, and I never had an extended family. Uh, so besides uh, my parents, I met only my uncle very, very briefly. Uh, but that was uh, that was all. So uh, I live alone. Uh, I am uh, one of the one third of the Holocaust survivors that live under the poverty line in the United States. In New York, there are 30,000 survivors. 40% of them live under the poverty line. It's uh, unconscionable. Uh, well, I don't need, when I go, uh, when I give my presentations, uh, obviously I talk about it. I talk about my life. Uh, you know, I, I talk about everything. I'm very, very open. Uh, and when they want to give me money, I said, I don't want money. I have a foundation, give it to the foundation, but I do not want money. I don't do it for a living. And uh, my mission in life is to educate the next generation. So <clears throat> uh, just to give you two things that uh, I am very proud of. I don't know how it happened, why it happened. Uh, I don't think of myself as being a celebrity. 
but apparently people have heard me speak and they know me. Uh, but I've been invited to go to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to speak to the national uh, uh, evangelical uh, radio station. Uh, they will give me an hour and a half to interview me. They have uh, a very, very large uh, audience. And at the same time, I've been invited uh, also to be interviewed by Google. <laughs> I'm laughing because... Uh, it's beyond my uh, wildest dreams, but uh, I am uh, very, very honored. And I don't know if you have heard of uh, BBYO, uh, Nebrit Youth Organization. So I'm flying uh, Friday, I'm flying uh, to Dallas to their international convention. There will be over 3,000 students from uh, about 45 different uh, countries. This will be my fourth time, so uh, uh, I'm looking forward uh, to it. What sweatshirt are you going to wear at that conference? Say it again? What sweatshirt are you going to wear at that conference? Oh, no, oh, the, the shirt? I'm yeah. going to... Hold on a sec. <laughs> It pays to know the everyone, and I get inside of their heads, so I I, I have the ability to uh, ask the unusual questions. So, yeah, okay. I'm just going to take it out one second. I'm just I'll bring up my uh, shirt and show. And Anne, if you're I don't know if you can see it. I hope because of the uh, background. Okay. What's it say? Uh, Israel Air Force. I served there. Okay, and that's what I want uh, to show. Um, my my father I'm, served. I'm very proud. I'm very proud of uh, being Israeli, and in my presentations, uh, the one thing that I do, and I think that we should also do it, is instead of emphasizing my story, which is as compelling as it may be, it's a personal story. I go through the stages that since we did not take uh, the appropriate uh, actions and uh, timely, it uh, just escalated until it came to a point of return. So I talk about the history. How did it happen? How is it possible that ordinary people from Germany, from Europe, from other countries, found it not only acceptable, but required to annihilate one group of people of the Jewish people. So uh, that is uh, something that I do differently. And uh, the other things that I also do, which I like, uh, when I go to schools, I am just a guest. I do not give the presentation. I empower the young people okay, to be the moderators. As a matter of fact, I had a seven, seventh grader moderating in front of 400 students, uh, an 11th grader moderating in front of 1,200 students. So uh, my goal is to empower them to become- uh, All right, I have one question for you, Sam. What year, yes. what year did your father, what year were you in the Air Force in Israel? Or was it- 62, 65. 
62-65. Just to have a further connection with you, my father was in the Haganah Air Force in, 19, in the War of Independence in 1948. He made propellers. Wow. So wow. we have something else in common. Yeah. Uh, so, I, uh, I I worked at the uh, most sophisticated sophisticated plane that Israel had at that time that was used in the uh, Six Day War. I was uh, basically on that base that uh, we uh, worked on that plane, and that was the Mirage Three C. I was the first in the first class in Israel that learned about that plane, Mirage Three C. Nice. The first class in Israel. Okay, thanks, Sam. And next up is Judith. And then I'll get to you, uh, Anne. So just relax. You don't have to get on screen. You can still stay where you are. <laughs> and uh, right now... Uh, wait, wait, you know, Sammy. Sammy, I'm going to stop you. I'm sorry. I'm giving it over to Judith. Thanks. Yes. Very good. Uh, Sammy, that was really great. Everybody so far. I'm sorry I'm late. My computer did this huge crash thing. And I have things up all over my computer i have to call apple now it's a, it's a mess anyway uh, but i made it i'm here even in the middle of the mess but um um and zola it's so great to see you it's such a sweetheart and and the rest of you too um so i just um i wanted i just got information that the Su susa mendez is that how you pronounce it s-o-u-s-a susa uh -huh. mendez foundation they're they having a big event and they're showing a f this film of my cousin arthur zigglebaum at the event and the hero of the warsaw ghetto and everything he did and they're going to have the head of the uh judd newborn who's i don't know he was the head of the museum and a woman from the in the anne frank foundation is co-sponsoring it I should send the, the announcement to you. But my sister sent it to me because there's this big picture of our cousin. And, you know, it's like, it's shocking. Every time I see him, his picture, I get a shock in my body because, you know, it's my family. And I, I just, uh, anyway, you know, I, I don't know if you know about him, but um, he was, uh I have an essay about a, a published uh, article about him on academia.edu. It's called Arthur Zigglebaum, Hero of the Warsaw Ghetto. And he, I, I summarized a lot of things about his life. Um, there's a biography of him written, Der Koach zu, zu Starben, The Courage to Die. And um, there's a book, also another book about him. And I, I, got together a lot of information from different sources and I wrote this article. And a lot of people go on academia.edu and they research and they find the article. So I'm glad that people all over the world are learning more about him. But he was an amazing person who, uh, his his parents' um, granary, whatever they had, a huge, you know, they were wealthy and everything got burned up. And then he was a, a little boy, he had no education completely self-educated he ended up becoming in charge of the uh they passed a law from some treaty of versailles that jews could be in the trade have a trade that was i think in 1922 or something like that i can't remember all the dates but he was in charge of then going to all the shtetls and edu educating these people you could be a shoemaker it means people were starving in the shtetls so he went around everywhere and he had a newsletter about Velva, who can now join a trade and everything. So he became he, a member of the Polish government. 
And he came up from, from nothing. Everything was self-educated. And he was very active in theater and you name it, he was in it. And so um, he became the leader of the underground in the Warsaw ghetto. And um, the, the Germans were aware of him. They, they were watching him. And so the underground smuggled him out. So he was a, a member of the Polish government in exile, you know, not, well, representative of the Polish government to the free world. So he went around to the United States, to, to London, everywhere, trying to get support for, you know, for us and everything, doors were all closed to him. And so um, he he was in communication with Jan Karski. I don't know if you, he was also, he was a, a Pole, people know a lot about him. Uh, he was bringing messages from what's going on in Poland in the Warsaw Ghetto to Arthur. So a message was delivered to Arthur who at that time was living on Bond Street in England and broadcasting on the BBC. And the message was, um, you have to do everything, including giving up the underground says everything, including giving up your own life. And there's an interview um, on YouTube with Jan Karski saying he was like disturbed. He said, what do you mean give up my life? Oh, I'm going to stand in the middle of London and I'm going to kill myself. They're just going to say he's insane. You know, what? what is all this? What? What can I do? Anyway, it ended up that he wrote this scathing letter to all the allied nations of the world. And he did take his own life, not in public, but uh, he took his own life. And the letter to these allied nations was kept by Poland for I think 50 years. Finally, the U United States Holocaust Memorial Museum got that letter, <clears throat> installed it on the third floor, which is the final solution floor of the museum. And they had a big ceremony honoring Arthur and our family, and um, they uh, get, he received the highest medal of honor from Poland, given to him by the country of Poland posthumously at that ceremony. So, so we were there and my mother who was very close to him, see his, his um, father and my grandmother were brother and sister. And he watched over my mother and because she had a gorgeous voice, he brought her, she she became an orphan. Her her father was assassinated by a, a Polish general when she was in the womb. And then her mother died. She was a young girl, a teenager. And Arthur took her to the Hazemir of Ludge, which was the premier um, chorale, choir of Jewish choir that sang with all the symphonies and did opera in Yiddish. They did La Traviata, everything in Yiddish. and. She became a member, Arthur was of course very influential. He brought her there. She was the youngest one. They called her, the, her she was the little Pizzola and she was there. And of course, when the Nazis came, that was the end of everything. But um, but we we have this relationship and they everybody was from Helm. And maybe the only thing you ever knew about Helm was that the book about the, you know, the funny, the joke about the, the you know, the 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 Shalom Aleichem, the wise men of Helm, making jokes. But Helm is where Hasidism originated, and the rabbis there it was a it was a seat of learning and and great scholarship. My grandfather, which was my my um, mother's father, he was a, a Hasid of the Rebbe of Lublin, and he was in Helm. Well, Arthur's family was also in Helm, 
we were all family. And but he went more into the more liberal side of of Judaism. That's why he brought my mother to that choir because as a chassid, a woman would not be able to sing in a choir with men and women. You know, so we had the more liberal side and the orthodox side. Everybody was together. There was no contention. And one time, my mother wrote that there was a time in town when my her brothers, my uncles, all of whom perished in the Holocaust, they were rabbis, that they saved Arthur from the Polish police. Something was going on at the time. He was always getting people together for various things. And they carried him away on their shoulders from, from the Polish police. So somehow the whole family always gravitated to us. And so in the United States, all the siblings, would, Arthur's siblings would come from all over the world to our house. And people would say, why are they coming to you? And so there's history there of this relationship that of my uncles, you know, helping him. And, and so when, when um, they all gathered together for one final portrait, when they were already older, and they came to New York, and, and Feivel Ziegelbaum wrote, who wrote the book, The Coast is Starving, he put me in the picture with all the siblings of Arthur. And he said, you, you look like Arthur's daughter and you're one of us and I want you in the picture. And um, so in the book is the picture of all the siblings and me. And it's like, wow. And then, um, so, you know, we, we were intertwined and in, at this big ceremony in Washington, my mother sang this uh, song, Ghetto, in Yiddish, which she had learned in the DP camp from Arthur's brother, actually. And, and you know, the whole, it, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. I mean, he was Judith, such- Judith, can I, can I interrupt you for life. a second? He was a force of life and he died. And, and there's, there are memorials for him everywhere, all over Poland. They just made a statue in film. They made a bench with Arthur sitting on a bench. It's like, I'm like cringing anyway. Um, Judith, you know, Judith, hold on a second. Yes. Please tell us who Judith is, because you haven't, oh, you me? haven't. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm a clinical psychologist. It's Dr. <laughs> Judith Tellerman. I have like a lot of history with. Um, I was appointed by President Clinton to be an advisor to the federal government because of projects that I had done and a lot of work. I went back and forth to Washington for seven years advising the branch of the federal government that does um, mental health, substance abuse prevention. And I have uh, this program I developed, which I got the, all the awards from the American Counseling Association, all the top awards for this program I developed, which is uh, a counseling program to help children prevent uh, destructive behaviors and help them learn to solve their problems. And that that book chapter is also up on academia.edu. So I have a lot of credentials, you know, um, I'm a diplomat and I'm, you know, fellow of the academy. Where, and where are you located? I'm in Chicago and I'm now I'm in private practice mainly, but I still have things going on here, there and everywhere. And, but well, one, I'm also, one of the things that, one of the things that you have going on is with Zola and Robin right? Bernstein on May 19th. And I want a great follow-up plug to have you, uh, yes. the three, three of you will be presenting the songs of survival. If I'm remembering the title correct, am I right, Zola? 
Yeah, yeah, whatever soul is. Remember, had. remembrance of remembrance of what's a. I'm so, hold on one second. I'll tell you in one second so you get the, I get the title right for everyone. Hold on. I think it's remembrance through song and art or something. Yes, good, through good. art and remembrance through art and song. Thank you, Zola. And oh, the thing I didn't say is I'm a cantorial soloist, <laughs> and um, so that's how what's going to be going on at this presentation with Zola. Uh, She's an amazing musician and singer and composer and I don't even know everything she but she's amazing and I'm also I also write songs and I have many many YouTube videos about songs about the Tanakh and um, I also have archived uh, uh, recorded songs that my mother brought to me that were archived that weren't nobody knew about and now they're on YouTube a song about the Balfour Declaration and uh, a song, a, a yardside song that the Hazamir sang to the melody of, of the funeral. <laughs> anyway, you, you'll right. see certain things on YouTube. Okay, enough about me. <laughs> okay, I want to just say that um, both Zola and Judith and Mark have done a uh, Obligation of Memory uh, interview series with me, which is both on the YouTube channel for jcrnow.com, and we have a new website at jcrnow.com as well as the museum, which is our museum. So waiting patiently in the wing, and, and that's because Anne has eye problems, she can't be on screen, but she certainly can speak to us. So Anne Gorski is also from San Diego and a colleague, a member of the second generation group here as well. And hi, Anne, welcome. And tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, go ahead. You have to unmute yourself. I can hear you. There you go. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, I was born in Munich uh, after the war in 48, and uh, both my parents were survivors. Um, my father survived the Warsaw Ghetto, and um, he would talk about it anytime I asked him questions. They didn't, my parents didn't, he didn't burden me with it, but anytime I was interested, he was glad I had an interest, and he was happy to talk to me about his experiences. Um, he said when he left the ghetto, he thought he was the last Jew alive. Um, he was hiding in bunkers in the ghetto. And I remember him once telling me how he found a can of, um, well, lard or Crisco, like lard, and how he basically ate it to, you know, because whatever there was hidden in different areas, he was scurrying about in the ghetto. He was able to eat or he would, he would eat. And, uh, he had a, he was married. He had a wife and two children and, uh, uh, nobody survived of his family. Um, and, uh, after he left the ghetto, um, he escaped at night. He went over some barbed wire and he had a contact and he, uh, knew a woman. Uh, there was a woman that basically uh, kept him in her, uh, apartment and he was hiding there basically after the ghetto. Um, and uh, I'll just tell one quick story. Um, somebody somebody informed that uh, she they thought she might be keeping somebody and the Germans came to the door and they knocked on the door and um, my father was hiding in this like a, I guess they had like a clothes hamper and in this closet and I guess, guess they were big hampers and uh, they had just eaten something, he and this woman. And the Germans said, you live alone, right? And they, she said, yes. And he said, well, why are there two plates on the table? 
And she said, well, my cat just, we, my cat's some food for my cat. Anyway, they had long bayonets at the end of their rifles and they basically ripped the place apart and took the bayonet. They opened the closet thing where he was hiding and they stuck the bayonet into the, I don't know if you call it a bassinet. I don't know exactly what it was, but it, it missed him. So there are lots of lots of stories like that, but he did, he did survive. And uh, my mother was a sole survivor also. So each, both of my parents basically survived alone in the, in the world after the war. And uh, my parents, I grew up in Milwaukee. And uh, like I said, if I asked questions, my parents definitely told me things. And I, and I can remember a moment of going to overnight camp and saying goodbye to my mother and somehow I had a flash of, of a train or a flash of what it must have been like for people to say goodbye to their parents. Um, and I must have been 10 or 11. And I, I don't know that I knew much except saying goodbye to your parents. For me, that was an emotional thing. Um, so I know we're a little short on time, so I'm not going to go into the That's whole okay. thing. I, yeah. So... Okay. Um, so and I wanted, did you know and you did did you know the Peltzes were you there in the 70s? I did know the Peltz family, yes. Because I lived there, okay. I was there yes. from 68 to 83. I lived yes, in I, knew, I knew the Peltzes, yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. very good. The survivor that's, community, yep. That's a very yes. small, it's a really small community. And I want to give Naomi, I see you have now nice connections of sitting next to uh Tibor, and I wanted to give you an opportunity if you choose to. Uh, to share a little bit about yourself. Okay, I am a Holocaust survivor. Believe it or not, I was 14 months old when my parents, my two brothers, one brother was one month old, my other brother was three years old, we went to hiding. And when I was 22 months old, uh, war ended and I survived the war. But when they went to hiding, uh, my my father took my brothers and they went about 15 kilometers, about 10 miles, walking to hiding and they left me behind by myself. One year old baby. And my father came back to me the same day and German were knocking on the door and superintendent was saying, I heard them leaving. I know that they left. And they were saying, and my father put a pillow on my face that I would be, I wouldn't be crying. And uh, and they, they were saying, okay, we are from, uh, going to throw grenades there. And, and the superintendent was saying, don't do it because you are going to ruin my house. And those gentlemen left, and my my father took me to safety. And after seven months in hiding, I'm here. <laughs> and where where were you? Where were you? Where were you born? And where were you hiding? I was born in it was called Slovak Fascist Republic, and I was born in Bratislava. <clears throat> now it is capital of Slovakia, and. And I, I didn't know that there was a war because we went into school. Uh, they didn't tell us that it was a war against the Jews. It was a war against the Slovaks. And when I was 14 years old, somebody asked me, 
how come you are alive? And I told him, why shouldn't be alive? And uh, I went home, and after my parents told me that we, we were Jew, I, I knew that we are Jewish. We were always Jews, but I didn't know that it was a war against the Jews. And, and after I got married to this guy, <laughs> and he- And how long have you been married? 55 years. Beautiful. And, uh, and you still staying with him? Are you still staying with him after 55 years? We are still smiling. You can <laughs> see. And, uh, and, and my husband, he went through everything because he was 14 years old. He's still 14 years older. And he is going to talk to the show in a few weeks. And I learned everything about the war from him. When he was talking to schools, to universities, to organizations, and I learned everything what really happened to us. Okay, well, thank you. So I'm going to uh, the next part of the program, and I'm hoping that we'll conclude at 11. But I want to play something for you, which is very, which has really started me on the another sort of pathway. So I'm, before I give it away, I want to just share it with you. It's only two minutes, and we'll jumpstart from there on another topic. Yeah, it is there. Do you remember a bit? One thing that always, always years bothers me, I never will know that how my mother dreamed when she died. I've known about the concentration camps as long as I can remember. But I can honestly say I never used to think about it too much. At first you just hear it, it's just a story, and it's not real. But then one day you realize that, hey, this, this really happened, and it was really my mother. Do you remember your parents well? Yes. And I, I love them. I love them both. They told us to take out the clothes and we didn't, nobody wanted to go into the showers because we knew the showers are gas. It's so horrible that I, I can't, I can't really imagine. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know that everybody's mother wasn't in a holocaust. As we walked into the camp, immediately they took into the guest chamber. When my children cried because they got hurt or because they didn't get what they wanted i i, I didn't hear or see my children i saw them i don't want to feel guilty that i have put a a load on you because of my experience you did you did you put a load on me it's obvious that it has something to do with warning. I don't know to what extent it does. I think I owe all my children an apology. It's the guilt of your imagination, your fantasy about what might have happened and what might have happened to you. Totally different Holocaust guy. What you're talking about is the Holocaust of the mind.
So this film was called The Generation Apart, and you can find the film on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really emotionally uh, interesting, but also warning, a little bit of tough to get through it. And it's really the function of us as second generations discussing what it was like to grow up in your parents' home. And so my question, which I, I kind of uh, pre-announced to the group through an email, was I'd like to have you think about and share with us what it was like to grow up in your survivor parents' homes. Now, both my parents, I'll start, both my parents were survivors. Mother from Auschwitz, my father left uh, Nazi Germany at 15. We talked about parents letting their children go. My grandparents uh, decided that after the Nuremberg laws in Germany, they saw the writing on the wall and they decided to let my father uh, go with on the last kinder transport from Hadassah Aliyah program through with 100 teenagers through Italy and on to uh, um, Port Haifa in Palestine. And he arrived there in 1936, early 36, and he was only uh, 35. Um, he met my mom in, uh, my mom has a very interesting story, but what I wanted to share with you is both my parents, even though they went through their own uh, Holocaust survivor uh, situation, never really transferred that traumatic experience to my sister or I. My sister's four years older than I am. I'm 64. And um, however, ever since I can remember from the fifth grade, I have had Nazi nightmares so bad that it would wake me up in the middle of the night. And so I never could understand what was going on since my parents never talked. And so my parents were very goal-oriented, though they came to the United States in 1954, pregnant with my sister, never knew the language. They, they landed in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, she was born there in 1954. I was born there in 1958. Um, they didn't have a shekel to their name when they came here. They didn't speak any English. And they became very, very successful here in business. Um, and I, my father and my mother is my hero. Uh, both personally and um, and I turned out to be an entrepreneur like my parents um, were. So they were very goal-oriented. There was no way that I could not do well in anything that I achieved. My parents held very high, high standards for me, uh, and I felt those standards. But I didn't have any trauma. I didn't, never saw my mother uh, or father have nightmares or episodes or anything, but yet I, I suffered from this trauma. So I'm going to open it up to each of you. I want to, I'm only going to ask for volunteers. I will never call someone who doesn't want to speak to speak. But if you do want to speak, you can either raise your hand on the using the emotions button, or you can just be not too big of a crowd. You can just raise your hand and speak. So my question to all of you is what was it like to grow up in your parents' survivor homes? Who's going to be first, if at all? <laughs> you want me to be first? <laughs> all right, so uh, yeah, yeah. you made the first peep, so I'm giving you the <laughs> Um So as a child, I, first of all, my parents were older than all my friends' parents. They spoke with foreign tongue. They couldn't speak English 
properly. Um, but I always knew they were special. I didn't understand what the Holocaust was as a young child, but I knew my parents were survivors, which made them special. So that was one side. They were also very, very sensitive. My father would cry at TV shows or a pretty flower. Um, my mother was an actress, so there was a lot of emotion and expression and there was screaming and shouting and skipping and dancing when things were good and loud noises and, and crying and histrionics, all of which I thought was normal and which apparently terrified my friends if they were expressive when they were around. Um, I was not put a lot of pressure on as an achiever, but my sister was. She was eight years older than me. She was the firstborn, so everything fell on her. Um, but I did have a very strong work ethic because my father, you, there was never any downtime. You have to make use of every moment of every minute of day. And even if you were sick, you needed to be working. So he would bring me stamps to tear off envelopes if I was sick in bed because he was a philatelist. So you must always be creating something or putting in effort and being productive. I used to get embarrassed a lot because my father would always want to take rolls from the restaurant home and ask the restaurant manager for more bread to take home. And as far as we knew, we could afford to buy rolls and afford to buy bread. So I never understood this. So that was one of the things that used to embarrass me. And when they would express very loudly in a movie, they would clap or they would shout out in joy or in horror which nobody else in the Commonwealth of South Africa at that point, they were English trained and very polite. It was like really a strange family to be living in. As I said, my mother didn't speak about the Holocaust, but my father did. And also my father organized the Sherita Plata, which was an organization that was a, all the survivors were invited to be a part of as to be a support for each other. So we had different groups of survivors. There were the Sephardim from Rhode Island that didn't always join the, the Sherita Plata group and a big Galiziana and Litvak group. And then there was the German side of the survivors that also didn't necessarily join the Litvak group. Um, you know, Jews, you must go to the one, the shul that you don't go to. There was there was the stigma if you talk Yiddish or we don't want to be Yiddish anymore. We want to be English and fit in. So there was a whole big mix. But eventually the groups came together as they got older. So the Sherita Plata always met in our home. And um, there were movies. They showed movies about the Holocaust. They spoke about their experiences. There was a lot of screaming and shouting in Polish and in Russian and in Yiddish. Um, it was the Holocaust was always there on in in present. Um, as a child, my sister bore the brunt of the trauma more readily. She was sent to the school, the government school on Jewish holidays where where she was highly embarrassed because no Jewish children went to the school on Jewish holidays, even though it was a government school. What are you doing here? And my parents didn't know. So 
they would send her to camp without a sleeping bag. So there were a foreign immigrant story that would happen more so for her. I was let off easier. Um, I'm trying to think of other little issues. My, my biggest trauma that I didn't know I had until later I understood was that every day that I had to go to school, I cried for about an hour or two. I did not want to go to school and I cried for the first hour in school. And I didn't know why I was crying. This was age six, seven, eight. It stopped when I was about nine or 10 only. They used to call me crybaby. I used to say my father hit me when they asked, which was not true. Um, I mean, he did hit me sometimes because apparently I did things wrong, but I didn't know that I did, but that's a different story. But I cried, I understood only later, was because I didn't want to leave my mother alone. She had lost her family. She didn't like to be by herself, even though she was this actress and, and happy-go-lucky person most of the time. At home, she was often quiet and played patience, little card games quietly in the corner, did her yoga when she wasn't on stage or playing bridge. She was very quiet and melancholy. And I got the message of my older sister, every time she went out, it was, Nava, why are you going out? You must stay home. Why, why are you leaving me? So I got that message, I think. And I didn't want to leave her. And I think somehow I realized that she had lost all her family, that she was alone and didn't want to lose another part of family. And I only figured that out in therapy many, many years later. So that was, I think, my biggest trauma that I was aware of. The other thing is I don't leave home easily in case something happens. I have to be ready. I have to be ready to take care of whoever needs taking care of or whatever needs taking care of. Food, there must be plenty of food in my fridge. There has to be a second and a third one waiting in the wings so that we do not run out of food. And if someone likes something in the house, it gets a label on if that's the last piece so that that person can eat it and nobody else must eat it. And I think I got that from my father. He used to label some of his favorite things in the fridge so nobody else would eat it, God forbid. So my in case of taking care of is a huge one for me. Again, I didn't realize it was a post-traumatic you know, generational thing until I heard other two G's talking about it. That, you know, if I'm entertaining or doing a concert in the night, I will not leave the house the whole day in case something should happen. And then I'm not available for the stage show or I'm not available for something. But I'm not agoraphobic. It's, it's an interesting dilemma. I could go on, but somebody else's turn now. Well, Mark, you had your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. You're following, you you're following Zola again. Sorry. That's Should all I... right. I love Zola and I don't mind at all that she is so wonderful and passionate because I feel I enjoy her. I enjoy everybody here. The truth is, my childhood was very, very strange and it's still a mystery to me. I, my father was a total mystery when he was home. He was a very sullen, very dark man. He was an only child. And I always thought the Holocaust is why he was so cruel and, and difficult to deal with. But we met someone who knew him when he was 11 years old. 
and said he was always like that. I think the thing that I remember most is that he always taught me that we had to excel. He'd say, he would always say a Jew has to do better than everybody else because when the Holocaust comes again, and he believed, I think with his whole heart, that in America there would be another Holocaust. And if he was, al if he was alive today, I think he would be very, very, um, how can I put this to you? He would be almost in a panic about what he's been seeing with the hate and with the terrible divisiveness and all the things going on. And he would, he'd be almost like a survivalist, you know? And I think that's part of it. They were so driven by the need to survive and to excel. And that was imbued in me. And I have to tell you that I would have been a perfectionist. I am a perfectionist in myself. But when I became a classroom teacher, I realized that pushing my perfectionism on children was a terrible thing. And so I, I learned not to do that. My father never really did. And my mother, my mother was really the first female liberationist because he struggled against his power so much. He wouldn't let her drive. He wouldn't let her take a job. And she did all those things in secret. Okay. I will tell you this. I absolutely refuse to carry aluminum foil in my purse. <laughs> my mother and all her friends, they would go to a bar mitzvah wearing fur coats, shimmering gowns. And as soon as they got there, the aluminum, the pocketbooks would open up, the aluminum foil would come out. And before you knew it, there was nothing left on the tish. <laughs> uh, I guess really what saved my life, honestly, was teaching. Because I got from the kids that I worked with, uh, I was a fifth grade and a sixth grade teacher. I also taught college. But I got from them the affection I never had as a child. And I have over a thousand of my former fifth and sixth grade students on Facebook with me now. And I'm retired 23 years. I think that's some kind of a Guinness Book of World Records. But it, I think one thing that happened too is the experience I had as a child with the Holocaust shadowing me made me extremely sensitive to injustice, to bullying, and to the child who needed help. And I think that's why I have so many students with me still after 23 years because they knew I cared. And maybe that's what we have to do. We have to show that the Holocaust turned us into caring people. And maybe that's the secret of how to pass that on. So, you know, all these years I've sort of resisted going into schools because I knew so little. But maybe that's what we have to do, show that we care, not just about the Holocaust, as I've said before, but as a Holocaust of all the hate that we see in the world today. Because I know when I hear about what's going on in Michigan State, in New York City, in Ukraine, as safe as I feel in my gated community in the villages in Florida, my heart breaks. And I feel that 
the caring is what makes us the second generation and the first generation. That's what makes us so special that we have that caring that we're willing to put in time even for a meeting like this. Because you know what? That's what the, that's what it really is all about, the caring. Lloyd, why sound corny, right? Not at all. Michael, go ahead. I'm glad you, you must, find, must find this I interesting. Do. I, I, you must find this interesting because you're staying with us. You didn't say you were going to be here so long. I yeah. know. I was gonna I was gonna I, go right a midterm. <laughs> um so <clears throat> so I want to just echo what Mark just said. Um and, and and also respect Mark for for having uh, thousands of Facebook following students. That's awesome. Um, and the 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 main message that he shared that I want to echo is um, about caring and resilience. So when we frame the Holocaust as a as a story of of millions of victims, uh, while it is true, it, it, it doesn't give us the story of, of all the resilience and resistance. And the resistance is now gaining traction as a, as a narrative about you know, what people did at the time. What I think survivors teach us, and this is for my own family as well, although in my family, you know, there were three survivors and they were all very different in how they approached things. Um, but I don't want to dwell on that. I want to I want to say that the resilience that Mark just spoke about is a different narrative than the um, narrative that is well correct that we there's a lot of trauma, a lot of suffering um, during and after the Holocaust. The resilience narrative, and it's one of the three R's in my textbook: uh, remembrance, respect, and resilience, is really important. Um, and when we when we look back um, as two G's and three G's and so forth, uh, and we see survivors having resilience, my grandmother uh, was one of the most optimistic people I knew, and 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 she had incredible resilience as a survivor. And I named my first child after her uh, because of that. Um, and the resilience that students need, any student, any time, any level, uh, needs resilience. Uh, because things get hard in life and and we have to bounce back from difficulty uh, so the holocaust is very applicable genocide generally very applicable to uh, education generally if we emphasize the resilience as well as recognizing the the, the trauma and the harm and so forth um so I, I i tended to like you know my father i think is a a guy thing, but my father tended to not talk about uh, things that were difficult, including the Holocaust. Um, I didn't have my grandfather, my my grandmother, and to to a little extent, my my aunt, who was a psychologist and and professor of psychology, did talk about the difficult things, um, uh, but modeled resilience, modeled um, the ability to uh, endure and survive and and continue. And I think that's a good narrative um, for all of us as people and as Holocaust educators and as family members. Um, that's that's all I wanted to say. Um, but I do um, I do understand the importance of reflecting back on the you know the complicated, difficult you know kind of uh, quirky aspects of being a two G. Uh, you know, not having grand parents or or you know i guess the line i always started with was 
from a, a, an anthology of 2G writings, you know, other, and when I was in school, uh, I noticed that other people had grandparents, you know, why didn't I have grandparents? And I actually did have grandparents, but, but not the full set. And, um, and so the, the, you know, kind of difficulty that we inherit uh, structurally and, and emotionally, the nightmares about riding trains in Europe and things like that um, are real. Uh, but so is the resilience of, of survivors. So I just want to follow up on both you and Mark's point, and I want to thank uh, Ava and her and Ida and Henry because this group that I founded in May of twenty one was really it, the one came out of the match that struck something in me, which was based on Ava and Ida and uh, Henry's inclusiveness in welcoming me to their Holocaust family. And so I think your point about love and being uh, inclusive is how I have built and wanted to model the Facebook group and the now the jcrnow.com uh, uh, group as a collective uh, community of love. And for us to teach how the Holocaust be, can be um, shared with the younger generation through the various digital platforms that I've built and honoring my parents and bringing the lessons of love as we are right now, right this minute discussing. And these, these uh, programs will be seen. And they, and I can tell you that, the, you know, over, we've had over 9,000 views and members and plays to these programs that are streaming through the various platforms. And I am, I'm, I just have to pinch myself all the time that I have gone from literally leave me out of this whole Holocaust thing to the turning and leaning in and not, you know, I can't do anything a little bit. So for me, leaning in isn't just leaning in. It's like, you know, let's go, let's go big, big, big. My wife always says, you can't just do anything small. Why can't you just do something small? You have to go like, you know, big, 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 but uh, that is a fundamental principle that I have used and it resonates with people. Honestly, it really does. So thank you for bringing that forward. Who, is, who wants to add something else? Go ahead, Naomi. Okay, after the war, I was two years old and uh, my parents went to synagogue, we were Jews. And I found out that I was only one Jewish girl from whole capital city of Slovakia who survived the war. Wow. Only one. And after they were Yitzchol uh, services, and we were children, they sent us out from the synagogue because children are not supposed to be inside. We were Orthodox Jews. When people came out, the floor was wet. And I was asking my parents, what's happening? What, what, what is it? What, what, what were you doing there? And they were crying. They were everybody who was in the synagogue was Holocaust survivor. And this, I I feel it till now. It was horrible. Do you know how many? And, do you know how many people? Uh, when you say that you were the only child survivor, do you know how many people were killed uh, in your community? Everybody my age. Nobody, not even one. I was born in 1943, and there were absolutely no Jewish girls or boys who survived the war my age. Zero. 
Wow. But after my brother, he was born 1944. He was only eight months old when the war ended. He was another one who was nobody in the city. But when he went to the synagogue, everybody was kissing me. And I hated kissing till I was about 16 years old. I couldn't stand anybody to touch me. Now I'm okay. I can, mm -hmm. I can kiss Tibor, but I couldn't stand anything like this. And after when we went, I went to school when I was six years old, it was still, it was not communist country yet. And they were praying and I was only a Jewish child and they were praying uh, those Christian prayers. I was putting my, 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 my hand into my ears. And there was a director of that school. Every day he came to that, to that class and he was asking, who is other religion than Christian? And he knew that whole school was nobody else Jewish except me. And this is what I remember till now. Okay, I let Tibor talk when he was- I wanna, I wanna ask you, Naomi, how did you meet Tibor? <laughs> I met him in Prague. Uh, I, I, my father was president of Jewish communities for whole Slovakia, and I think he knew Tibor, and we went in, we we went for a coffee with my father. Tibor was there. My how father. Old were you? How old were you? I was twenty-three. Already an engineer. I was, yeah, I was twenty-two years old, and I have master degree in engineering. I was smart enough the time and and uh, Tibor told me okay I'm going to show you Prague and Prague is beautiful city and he left uh, he was living on the west side of Czechoslovakia at the time and I went with my father back to Bratislava and I invited Tibor to come to visit me next month he sent me telegram and I never received the telegram but I, I had Telepathy, I went to the railway station and Tibor was there. And we I took him, I wanted him to come hiking. I I I I was a vivid hiker. I wanted to hike. And he was saying, I am not going to any forest. I had no idea, no idea why. Okay, we went to Old Castle and and Tibor asked me if I'm going to marry him. It was second time I saw him, and third time, this is. Well, we corresponded a lot. We corresponded well, every but... day. So when you brought Tibor home to your parents, what did they think? My my parents, they were very happy that I have Jewish men. They were not Jewish children. I it there was nobody, you know, there was no Jewish boys. It my father were very happy. But when I found out, my father found out that he's 14 years older and he, 14, he 14, and he showed everybody around Jews, every man was about 12, 14 years older than the, the wife. Okay, we got married. And uh, at this time, we had a civil ceremony in Prague and Jewish ceremony in Bratislava, Slovakia. But Jewish ceremony was illegal at that time. And my father was saying, we survived the war and my daughter is going to have very big Jewish wedding. 
everybody from Slovakia came to Bratislava and we, it was more people on my wedding than on Yom Kippur. <laughs> and even non-Jews came because even non -Jews for 20 years it was forbidden to have religious wedding publicly. And, and, I, and when you brought Naomi home to your parents, Tibor, what did they say? I lived 20, 20 hours by train away from my mother. My father didn't make it. And I can tell you why and how. My brother is a communist regime uh, just caused that they were, they didn't make it alive. Uh, anyway, what I wanted to tell you is about continuation of Mike. Why? How I survived. And it was a resilience and resistance. My parents were Halutzim in 1920s in British Palestine, British Mandate Palestine. And uh, they read my account in 1925. Uh, my mother knew that Nazis would, and my grandparents knew the Nazis were Nazis uh, were plotting. They just didn't know how they would kill the Jews, but we believed that they would somehow try to do that. And uh, 1940, I was kicked out of school. I was 10 years old. When I was 12, it was already uh, deportation started. Um, Auschwitz was from where we lived about uh, 50 miles, about one hour by train. And a lot of trains were going towards Poland, to the north. Uh, and uh, they told us to bring our tools because we are going to work in a factories. Germany needs labor. They want to win the war. Families will be fed. Um, uh, whoever could work would work and it was no idea no, no not a single thought that it we were sentenced to death Wednesday conference in the january in, in, in february 1942 decided even how we would all die with a cyclone b gas chambers crem, crematoria Everything was ready already, which means the transports were going, deportations were going, and uh, we had nothing to eat because for two years we didn't have any properties, no jobs, uh, everything confiscated. And I went to fish to the local creek in the middle of the night, and it was ice was floating uh, around me. It was so cold, very high in the mountains. And uh, I heard from a little, it was a one room prison in that town. It was a county seat, only 2000 people in that little village, but it was a county seat and had a prison. And out of, I was in submerged in water, uh, you know, 12 years old boy and heard something in Yiddish and Polish, hey boy, come here. Uh, it means that I came close, climbed a rock to that bar windows with of, of the prison, and that hand came out with a gold coin saying, "If you get me out, get us out of here, 
you get a fistful of those coins. They just figured out that a boy fishing in the middle of the night in icy water without any equipment, with hands ca catching trout, it must be illegal because why would he do such a silly thing? If he was legal, he could fish at daytime with a, with a hook and line. Uh, and uh, naturally, I ran with a coin to my mother, contacted somebody. Who Oh, you froze, Tibor. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. And we, and we hid them in an apartment, and we hid them in an apartment of already deported Jews, which was sealed on the front door. And then we asked my mother spoke French. She was a, a teacher of many languages, including French. And they were Belgian people, Polish people, and uh, a group of people. They were medical doctors. Three of them out of group of four. And they, my mother asked, why, why did you escape? Uh, you obviously are Jewish, and who are you, and why did you ask us for help? They said, oh, we escaped from a village of Auschwitz. It's a concentration camp, and the Jews are coming there. They, took, they take few people out who are able to work, and the rest goes to... Uh, so-called uh, showers to disinfect, but they are not showers. They are just gas. Uh, it is it is a, a room where they get poisoned by gas, and then they are cremated in two hours. They process one or 2,000 people. They call it process processing. And uh, the pile of ashes are just packed and sent to German market farmers as fertilizers. And my mother said, my father said, you know, my father said, my seven siblings are, are have been deported already. My mother said, my parents, my sisters, three husbands were deported. For good heavens, don't tell us stories. We'll help you anyway. Why should we not help you if you need help? You don't have to exaggerate. You don't have to kid us. You don't have to scare us. And so, and they said, no, no, no. We had to hide them for ten days, so that police would stop uh, searching for them, and they would uh, some other prisoners would fill the prison and so on. Which means that ten days. We first, it took them three days to convince us that the really people coming to. Auschwitz, it was by accident, Auschwitz, Auschwitz in Polish, who where, where people were coming, a transport of 2,000 people was coming in, and uh, maybe 50 people were taken out of the transport, strong young men and, and women, girls, and the rest were, were, were just turned into ashes within two hours. It was cleaned up, and and they could process, they could process 10 to 15 to, to, to 20 some <laughs> people a day. Which means that this was something I watched, I listened, listen, a 12 years old boy, and, uh, you know, understood that my grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, cousins, I had a lot of cousins. My, my, my father had eight. Uh, seven siblings, and they had a lot of children. 
And I understood, you know, somehow I could had to come to turn with the idea that practically all my relatives, except my parents and siblings, were murdered. And one grandpa, grandfather was not murdered. Which means that, you know, I didn't have any trauma. We decided, my mother called us to say, should we finish our lives uh, voluntarily or should we resist? Should we resist against all odds because all governments of Europe were against us, were helping Germans, were cooperating. All offices, all policemen, all secret police, you know, we had nowhere to hide. We had yellow stars on us, uh, which means that we decided that we are not going to take our lives. We are going to, against all odds, fight to fight and fight and fight. Which means that it was no uh, space or time or thought not to be resist, not 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 to think of not resisting or not be resilient and not to be strong and not to really fight. For, against against practically all world because a thousand miles on in, in all directions, Nazis were taken over the territory and Gestapo ruled. Which means that I didn't want to just com, uh, uh, com, compliment Mike that those who survived had all be resilient, all resist resist. Uh, uh, and all these old people lived. Tibor, I'm honored that you chose to share your testimony here. It is um, something that just needs to sink in. Uh, and you were, uh, you talked about Auschwitz. My mother and her two sisters survived Auschwitz. Her father survived Auschwitz. Her mother uh, did not because her baby sister Magda, who was only eight, was ordered off the cattle car and told to go to the right by Mengele and her mother wouldn't let go of her hand and they died by gas on the very first day upon arrival. The other three uh, sisters survived uh, as camps, uh, Schwesters, they used to say. And her father was immediately ordered into the men's lager. They didn't know at all whether he was alive or dead for the time they were in Auschwitz and they only met each other on liberation. So. I am so honored that you chose to be able to be recorded. Your testimony will live for on forever. And it's important when someone denies the Holocaust, they can look at your testimony and hear it from a survivor. Uh, and that makes a world of difference. So thank you. If somebody, if somebody asks how they escaped, I can tell you in a few words. Uh, one or two thousand people were in a in a transport in the cattle cars which arrived to Auschwitz. Empty train returned to Slovakia. There were about seventy thousand Jews. Later on, the whole eighty thousand Jews deported, uh, which means that a lot of trains left Slovakia in nineteen forty-two. And uh, those people were medical doctors, and they were working on uh, biological weapons. They had with them ampules of cholera, typhoid, and so on, which means they wanted to, the Nazis wanted to murder all the Poles and all the 
Russians so that they would take over territory. Uh, anyway, those people uh, talked to the locomotive engineer and told him, here are, you know, a lot of gold or a lot of uh, jewelry and whatever. We give you more and more and more if you bring us railroad uniforms. And he did, because the money was good, simply rather poor people and the money was good. And uh, they dressed into the railroad uniform, started putting a coal into the engine, the locomotive, and cleaning the train, and left. And the Germans didn't notice that some workers uh, uh, in a railroad uniform, Slovak railroad uniforms, left left with a train, with an empty train. And this way, uh, as the as Slovak board, as a, a, a locomotive engineer said, jump out, give me my uniforms, jump out. And this is how they were arrested as Polish smugglers. It was the border area, smugglers were all over. Which means that this way, they told us how they were, how they escaped, and how they were in the prison where I discovered them, and eventually, without that knowledge, I would not be alive myself, because this we we learned in a direct from direct uh, evidence, direct eyewitnesses about the first, you know, Wenzel and Verba uh, Rosenberg came two years later, escaped two years later, and tried to save Hungarian Jews in 1944. This was 1942. And I have to tell you something to connect uh, to American Jews who believe that the Holocaust could not happen and would not happen again. And, it, and it's out of the question. That, that, which means that for those people, a message we tried to convince Jews who were ready to be deported to a labor camp. Nobody told us, Jews, we are going to kill you. Uh, and nobody believed us. Not nobody. Few people believed us and they saved themselves and we met them after the war. Only those who believed us, something totally unbelievable, that they would be That's nicely true. deported somewhere to be murdered. Nobody believed us that way that day. Now it's ever since there were a lot of genocides and a lot of uh, terrible wars and so on. But that time it was inconceivable. It was beyond belief, and Jews didn't believe us and went there and and were murdered. Which means that this is a message to those who believe that Holocaust could not possibly happen again. No, it can happen again, and I hope it will not because Israel is strong and we know that it could happen again well i can't i'm not going to follow up as you said mark tibor so i think we're just going to let that absorb and i thank you so much for your contributions this has been an absolute pleasure to be My with you to be with you all to share to learn and we'll do this again two months from now, again on Wednesday. I'll call mm -hmm. the date so you all know. Hold on one second. So March, it would be April the 12th. So put that in your calendars, April the 12th. And uh, we'll take, take care. I, I, 
and this recording yeah. this recording will be available tomorrow or the next day on the YouTube channel for jcrnow.com so you can share it. It'll also be in the museum under exhibitions. Uh, nice to see you. And again, uh, Devorah, thank you, Tibor, Zola, Judith, Anne, Mark, and all of you who are listening. Uh, and Michael, uh, this was a terrific, terrific time. The Learning Sam, uh, Sammy, and uh, we'll see you again. And by one reminder, this Sunday, we have our live Zoom event um, with two terrific authors, uh, Jennifer Coburn and Jeanette Gelman, and some special guests on music, which I'm not going to share because I want it to be a surprise. So uh, <laughs> we will all see you hopefully on Sunday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.